0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. 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 I woke up pretty sore this morning. Uh, Yesterday I took uh, Caleb and uh, John, two of our uh, young adults. We went golfing, uh, arching through the driving range. And uh, let's just say uh, we were a bunch of amateurs. And if Pastor Allen were there with us, he would just be shaking his head and saying, "I don't know these guys." <laughs> I think we hit more grass and dirt than we did golf balls uh, yesterday. It was it was pretty embarrassing. Um, but actually, Caleb, I was pretty proud. Of it. He 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 uh, definitely got the uh, genes from his dad, so he he hit some balls pretty far. So, uh, so we're, we're we're continuing our series. All in. Uh, this is our third week in our in our series all in saying yes to the mission of the church. And we've been learning what the Bible says about being a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean to truly uh, follow Christ, being a disciple of Christ? Last week, Pastor Allen took us into Luke chapter 14, and we, ta- uh, we learned about the costs of following Jesus. That is not free. Salvation is free, but the cost of discipleship is high. This morning, we're going to look at the story in Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, I just encourage you um, to take your Bibles out and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And the story that we're going to look into is about a rich young ruler. And what we're going to see is that this young man, he had thought that he was all in. But we'll discover soon that his idea of all in was very different than that of Jesus. So let me open us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we just uh, thank you, Lord. We praise you for your grace and your mercy towards us. We thank you that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, Lord. And Lord, that we don't have to earn our way to heaven, Lord. We don't have to earn our righteousness. Uh, We just have to simply trust, and have faith in Christ. Lord, may you speak to us, Lord, this morning. Open our hearts to receive your word, convict our hearts, and Father, I pray that you will make us, make our church a greater lover of Jesus and a greater lover of people. I pray these things in your name, amen. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was at home with my wife, Catherine. We're, we're at the dining table. Uh, we're just on our computers and our laptops doing some work. And out of nowhere, Catherine says, hey, do we have any more checks? So she said, do we have any more checks? And so I was like, uh, I, think, I think we're all out. And so at that point, I, I got up and I started heading to the, uh, to the kitchen. And I asked her while, while I was walking to the kitchen, I said, oh, why, why do you ask? Are, are you looking at the weekly grocery ads? And so I don't think she heard me. And so a couple seconds later she said, Yeah, because I'm trying to input something, I'm trying to set something up on the computer, and I need the routing number and the count number. And it finally clicked in in, in my head that she was talking about our bank account checks, but I was thinking of checks mix. <laughs> See, a week ago, a week ago, I we had bought a bag of, of, of checks mix. And so that's why when she said, Do we have any more checks? I said, no, I, I think we're out because I finished the bag. And that's why I went to the kitchen instead of the bedroom. And that's why I asked, oh, why are you asking? Do, are you looking at the weekly ads, thinking about the grocery ads? And so um, that, that, was a, that was a funny uh, situation there, but I, I think we've all experienced something similar to that, right? Where we think that we're on the same page with somebody, only later to find that we were, we're not on the same page. They were thinking about something, they were believing in something, and we were just totally thinking about something else. And the consequences can be pretty insignificant in, in, in the story that, that I just shared. You know, we didn't, you know, lose, you know, $100,000 or we didn't lose checks, Mix, you know. Um, you know, we just laughed and, and we just continued on with our day. But there are times when being on the wrong page can cost you your life. It can cost you your soul. It can cost you eternity. And so when we begin to look at the story of the rich young ruler, we're going to see that being on the same page or being on the wrong page can cost you your life, cost you your soul. I just want to uh, lay out the four points just ahead of time um, as we go through the story. So we're going to first look at the greatest delusion. And then we're going to look at the greatest challenge Third, we're going to look at the greatest tragedy. And finally, fourth, we're going to look at the greatest offer. So look at uh, look with me in chapter 18 of Luke. That's where we're going to start. We're going to start in verse 18. And so we're going to begin with the greatest delusion. So let me read verse 18 through 21. Follow along with me. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the young man said, All these I have kept for my youth. So our story begins with this rich, young ruler, this wealthy young man, who actually, as the Gospel of Mark records, he actually runs to Jesus and kneels before Jesus and asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is very different than a lot of you know, religious people, a lot of you know wealthy people that, um, you know, the Pharisees that Jesus often encountered in his ministry, where those you know, in, in the, the rulers of the synagogue and the Pharisees, they usually stood on side and with their noses high and, and tried to, when they're asking a question to Jesus, oftentimes it's not genuine. It was a, a way to trap Jesus and to accuse him. But the, the approach of this young ruler was very different, right? Especially when we read Mark's account, that he runs to Jesus and kneels before Jesus and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the posture of this young man was very genuine. His question was very genuine. He really wanted to know, what must I do to be saved? So how does Jesus respond? He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. No one is good except God alone. So the first greatest delusion is this. I am a good person. See, one of the greatest delusions in this world is to think that we are generally good people. We want to be humble and say, well, we aren't perfect. We're not, we're not, I know I'm not a perfect person. But then we also try to find those who are worse off than us, who are more evil, more immoral than us, and say, well, at least I'm not like that. I'm not those people. I'm not that bad. I'm not that evil. I'm not that corrupt. And so we, we, we like to compare ourselves horizontally with, with the rest of this world, and we like to conclude in our hearts, we're generally good people. I'm not like Mother Teresa, but I'm not like Hitler. I'm, I'm just kind of in the middle, right? But what does the Bible say? Romans 3:23 says, "For all have sinned. all, not most, not many. All have sinned against the holy and righteous and perfect God, and all have fallen miserably and infinitely short of his perfect character. See, when the, the delusion is that we can compare ourselves horizontally, but the, the reality is goodness is defined by God. God isn't good because he did a lot of good things, like creating the world and, and, and you know all the different acts. Rather, God is, all the things that God does is good because God himself is the essence of what is good. He defines what is good, what is holy, what is right, what is just. Last week in, in our youth at Rudy class, we, we learned about God is love. God is not love because he did a lot of loving things. Rather, everything that he does is loving because God is love. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, or 64, verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. Notice again the word all. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, all the good things that we think we can do, are like a polluted garment. Think about all the good things that humanity can do. Give to charity, help the poor, The Bible says, even those things that we may think is good, compared to God's goodness, our good works is like a filthy rag. So Jesus starts his answer to this young man by saying, no one is truly good except God alone. That's the first delusion that I am a good person. And Jesus says, there's nobody that is good. Only God is good. The second greatest illusion is this. I can become good by doing good. And I think this is where this young man uh, really started to believe. Because the young ruler, um, I I think he acknowledged in himself that he wasn't perfect. He wasn't good. And I think it's safe to assume and and believe um, this because of how he approached Jesus. The fact that he even approached Jesus to ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Shows, in a sense, that this man knew that he was missing something. He knew that he wasn't good enough. He, he needed something else. What What else do I need to inherit eternal life? Because if you really think, if he really believed that he was perfect and really all good, then he wouldn't have even come to Jesus in the first place, right? So I think this is this, this delusion that I can become good by doing good. I think this is where this rich man is, is in, in right now, in that place. In verse 20, Jesus brings up the Ten Commandments. It's very interesting. Jesus says, you know the law, you know God's commandments. And God goes on, or Jesus, uh, Jesus goes on and lists uh, five of the Ten Commandments. It's interesting that Jesus brings up the commandments, right? Right? Because he himself knows, and we know, that you're saved not by obedience to the law, but by faith in Christ. So why does Jesus even bring up the law to this young man? Is he suggesting to this rich young ruler that by obeying the law, that's what you're missing, that you will be saved? Just obey the law. I don't think that's why Jesus brings up the law to this young man. I think Jesus brings up the commandments in order to show that obedience to the law cannot save you. It cannot save anybody. See, the law of God is like, like a mirror. How many of you guys looked in, in the mirror this morning? I think all of you guys have, maybe. And so so the God, God's law, God's commandments is, is like a mirror. What does a mirror do? A mirror reflects an image. And so when we look at the law of God, when we look at his commandments, it reflects two things. First, it reflects the image of God. It reflects the character of God. Take a look at just even one of the commandments, thou shalt not lie. Why does God command, um, why does God give this commandment? Why is thou shall not lie in the Bible? Is it because God just... Saw that a bunch of people were lying and said, "Oh, here we go again. I got to create another law. Stop all this lying going on." And why did he say, "Thou shalt not murder"? Is it because simply because he saw a bunch of people killing each other and say, "Ah, oh, here we go again. Here's another law." But like a mirror, I think the first thing it reflects is the character of God. I think "Thou shalt not lie" is reflecting that God is not a liar. That is not His nature. That's not His character. It reflects that, that God is not a liar. In fact, in, in, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says that God is not a liar, and it is impossible for God to lie. And so when we see the commandments of, of God, it points to what God desires, it points to the design of God, it points to the character and the nature of God. And second, like a mirror, it reflects ourselves. It reflects people, it reflects not our beauty, it doesn't reflect our long hair and, and our eyes and, and you know, acne if, if we're trying to look for a pimple. Rather, it reflects our wretchedness. It reflects our sinfulness. It reflects our depravity. Why? Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 through 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And listen to this part. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law, like a mirror, comes knowledge of sin. When this young man was faced with the law, he should have got on his knees, beat his breast, and said, Have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. But this young man was still under this great delusion that he can become good simply because he did good things rather than confessing his sinfulness and how he fell infinitely short of God's perfect standard. How does he respond instead? In verse 21, he says, All these I have kept since I was a little boy. I've kept all these from my youth. You see, like so many people in this world, and I'm afraid that even professing, many professing Christians are deceived in believing that outward conformity to God's law can save them. If I give to the poor, if I go to church every week or every other week, if I don't cheat on my taxes, drive somewhat you know, under the speed limit, try really hard to raise my children well, do my best in school, if I just really try to live a good, honest, decent life, then I ought to deserve eternity in heaven. I ought to be made right with God. This should be enough, right? And I, I remember in, in high school, I, I really, or high school or college, I really had a hard time with with uh, this idea that if if a person just really tries their best, shouldn't that be enough? And especially looking at, like, non-believers, I've had so many non-believing friends who, on the outside, I mean, they were nicer, more hospitable, more kind than a lot of believers that I knew. And so to look at this non-believer and say, look at all the good things, all the good works, and just looking at the, the goodness and the kindness of their heart and to say, oh, you're, you're, you're deserving of hell, it's just very hard for me to swallow. And maybe it's hard for you to swallow, too. And even in the church, even, even as a Christian for so many years, I think we can get into this belief and this delusion that as, as long as I do these religious Christian things and really just try my best, that should be enough. That's what the young man essentially said. If all I need to do is keep the law, well then great because I've kept them from my youth. This man really thought that he was on the right page. He really thought he was on the right track so far, so far. He he thought he was on the same page as God, because Jesus just said, you know, the commandments. And the man said, great, I follow them. We're good, right? I'm on the same page. We're on track. But let's move on to the second point where we finally see Jesus bringing this man to the heart of the matter. So here we are in the greatest challenge. In verse 22, Jesus responds and says, what does he say? There's one thing that you still lack. I know you said you've kept them all. I think Jesus knew that he was full of himself, even though I think this man genuinely believed he followed all of the commandments. But now Jesus is saying, okay, there's one thing you still lack, and then you can have eternal life. Just one thing. Jesus says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That's all you have to do. Just go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That's easy. It's easy enough, right? What Jesus is really trying to do is bring this man to what it really means to follow Christ, what it really means to follow God. Jesus knew what was in this man's heart. And when he tells the man to sell everything, everything that he has, he wasn't giving this universal command, saying that any person who wants to be saved must literally sell everything that they possess. Rather, what Jesus was trying to do was to help this young man finally see what was really in his heart. What does his heart truly value and love and treasure? See, this man thought he was on the right page, he thought he was all in, simply by obeying the law and the commandments, even though his heart did not treasure God above everything else. I like how one commentary puts it. It says, Jesus' call or challenge is a test to see how responsive the man is to God's direction through him. Will he walk the path God's agent calls him to walk? In other words, Jesus was testing this man to see if he will respond with overwhelming joy like the man who stumbled on a treasure chest in an open field and with exceeding joy sold everything that he had to buy that field because of the treasure that he had found. Will this man see the treasure in Jesus? What is he treasuring in his heart? What did Abraham treasure and love? It was his son, Isaac, his only son, Isaac. And so what did God ask of Abraham to surrender? See, God didn't ask Abraham, I want you to give up your clothes or all of your sheep. Man, Abraham had a lot of sheep. He didn't ask Abraham to give up your servants or your property. What did God ask Abraham to give up? His son. Why? Because that's what Abraham loved and treasured. And it was a test to see, Abraham, do you love me even more than your son? John MacArthur said, the Christian life is not adding Jesus to one's own life, but renouncing that personal way of life for his, and being willing to pay whatever cost that may require. If you guys remember last week, uh, Pastor Allen's you know illustration with the, the, the blank white paper and how often we Come to God with a list of demands, a list of our agenda, and say, "Hey, this is what I want. I want a house. I want two kids. I want comfort. I want early, early retirement. I want this school for my kids and this education. I want my kids to be a doctor a lawyer." Here, God signed on the bottom, date and sign on the bottom. Or would we rather instead give God a blank piece of paper with our names already signed on it and says, "God, here." You tell me what you demand of me, and I will follow. Are we simply just adding Jesus into our life? I like that this analogy of of a phone with on our phone, whether you have an Android or or uh, an iPhone, there's different apps on your your phone, right, with different functions. And a lot of times we think of Jesus or Christianity. As Something that we can just add like I can just download an app called Jesus and whenever I need I can just click on it Maybe he's on a you know um, Favorites folder, so I just pull him up if I need him If I need help on a test I'll just pull up Jesus and say Jesus. I need you to help me get an a I need you to help me get a car I need you to help me get a job I'm going through something hard. Let me just pull up my app. It's called Jesus. Are we just adding Christianity, adding more religion, adding more church. Because Christianity does not mean adding more of Jesus into your life. Rather, it means getting completely rid of your old life so that a new life can come in. It means getting rid of your heart, your old, stony heart, so that a heart of flesh can replace it. Are you just adding Jesus into your life? Are you holding on to whatever dream you may have? Maybe it's a dream wedding, a dream marriage, house, family, career, retirement, and thinking you can just add a little bit of Christianity, add a little bit of church, add a little bit of ministry to complete your life, to make you a little bit more well-rounded person? Or are you willing to completely surrender your life, everything in your life, at whatever cost, so that you may gain something infinitely better, Jesus Christ? because that is what it means to be all in. When the man heard Jesus' words, how did how did this man react? What was his reaction to the greatest challenge? It said that this young man became exceedingly sorrowful. He was sad. This man who had come running to Jesus just three, four minutes earlier in anticipation, expectation. Good teacher, what must I do? I feel like I'm almost there. I'm just missing something to inherit eternal life. What must I do? Now walks away from Jesus full of sorrow. This is the greatest tragedy. It says the rich ruler walked away. Why? Because the Bible says it, it was because he had great wealth. So notice the connection here. It doesn't say he went away sad because of his education or his degree or because of his wisdom. It doesn't say because he had a wonderful family, that's why he went away sad. No, he went away sad because of his great wealth. And what did Jesus ask from this man? His great wealth. In other words, Jesus wanted what this man was treasuring most in his heart. He's confronting this young ruler, and he's saying to them, you think you are wealthy, you think you're rich. And I know other people think you are prosperous, and you have a lot, but the reality, Jesus is saying to this young man, the reality is that you are actually utterly broke. In fact, young man, you are massively and infinitely in debt because of your sin and idolatry. You love your stuff more than you love me. And I just love the way Mark says it in three words when Jesus, when Jesus looks at this man. He says, Jesus loved him. Jesus wasn't condemning this man. He wasn't condescending. Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. Why? Because he saw just how lost this young man was, how deep in his sin he was. And Jesus is just holding this young man and saying, I know what's in your heart, but do you now see what is in your heart? Do you see what you're treasuring most? Do you see that it's not me? Young man, do you see it now? Jesus loved this man. And the thing is, he wasn't trying to go after this man's money. He's not going after his possessions. Because in reality, Jesus owns it all anyway. All things are given to Christ. All his possessions, in the end, it's, it's Jesus. So Jesus isn't poor and he needs money. He's not in heaven, you know, trying to, you know, hey, my father is trying to pave another road in heaven and we're running out of gold, so can you sell everything for the kingdom of God so that we can finally pave this new road? That's not why Jesus wants his money. He's not after your money. What is he after? He's after your heart. And see, the tragedy, the greatest tragedy isn't when your your favorite sports team loses. It's not when Kobe Bryant died. It's not when you lose your job. The greatest tragedy isn't when you get rejected from the school that you wanted to attend. It's not that when you get into uh, an accident and you total your car. It's not that when you find out from your doctor that you have cancer. It's not that when you find out your best friend has passed away. These are, these are tragic, no doubt. But the greatest tragedy is when we, like this young man, has accumulated an infinitely infinite spiritual debt. We're in total bondage to sin, bound for eternal agony and regret, completely and utterly lost in this world. And the one person who alone can save you is standing right in front of you the one person who can redeem and restore you and give you life, eternal life to the fullest, who can give you a joy that's inexpressible, a peace that's incomprehensible, and a love that is unconditional. Jesus Christ, the one whom your soul longs for and is created for, and the one whom you desperately need for salvation, who alone can pay your debt in full, is standing right in front of you and you walk away. Sad. Because you love this world more. Like a doctor looking at the results of a test, the diagnosis was finally in. It was finally revealed. Young man, you love the world more than you love God. And your piety and your money could not cover up what is truly in your heart anymore. It's all out on the table. This young man walks away sad because he couldn't do it. And throughout the Bible, we see this great tragedy over and over, because of the the love of money and of earthly things. Remember, in, in the uh, in the Old Testament, Achan in, in uh, Joshua, he traded the favor of God. Achan traded the favor and the protection of God for what? Two hundred shekels of silver and a gold bar. Ananias and in the Old in the New Testament in Acts traded the fellowship with the church, the fellowship and the intimacy with the saints. For what? A small portion of the proceeds from a property that they had sold. And we remember Judas Iscariot traded the Son of Man for 30 pieces of silver. The Bible says that those who desire to be rich, not even those who are rich, those who desire, so you can be poor and still desire to be rich. So those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into a trap, into many many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And it's not just money, it's anything in this world. Anything that replaces God as your greatest treasure and Lord and Master It says it's senseless, it's foolish, it's stupid, it's harmful to you. And it ultimately leads to destruction. Again, Jesus isn't after your stuff. He's after your heart. And this rich young ruler tragically chose to treasure his possessions more than Jesus his treasure was in his stuff and that's where his heart was. His heart was not with Jesus. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart be also. God wants your heart. He's not really after your stuff. He wants your heart, but where your heart is, is in your treasure. Where you treasure, that's where your heart is. So if your treasure is not in Christ, Your heart is not with Christ. I just want to ask you before we go on is it possible that we can be doing Christian things, you know, going to church, giving tithe, and maybe even serving in ministry, and yet our heart is having an affair with this world? With your marriage, with your career, with your children? with their bank account. Is it possible that there are so many people in this world, in this country, who say, I am a Christian, I I love God, I love Jesus, I go to church, my parents are believers, I own a Bible, I own two Bibles, and yet their heart is having an affair because they love the world more. They treasure their marriage more, they treasure their children more, they treasure their money, their car, their career more. So seeing this young man walking away with much sorrow, Jesus says in verse 24 and 25, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Think about that analogy. Jesus saying, it's, it's so hard for a rich person. It's so hard for someone with great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier if I just grab that camel over there and cram it through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What was the response of those who were around him? The disciples said, then who can be saved? They were astonished at what Jesus had just said. But Jesus, did I just hear you... Correctly, you're saying that it's easier to shove a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for this rich young ruler to enter the kingdom of God. Who can be saved? What, what, were they, what they were saying is, it, during that time, and, and probably still now, it was it was a common assumption that if you had great wealth, great possessions, that it was because of the blessing of God. You had a lot of stuff, you had a lot of servants, you had a lot of land, you had you know a lot of possessions because... It was assumed that God was blessing you. God was showing favor on you. So if you had a lot of sheep, you had a lot of servants, a lot of property, a lot of money, it was because God blessed you, showing favor on you. So when the disciples said, then who can be saved? What they were saying is, if those who are blessed by God, those, like this young man, if it's so hard, if not impossible for this person to be saved, then what's the hope for anybody else? What's the hope for those who aren't as wealthy, aren't as blessed, aren't as rich as this this young man? In essence, nobody can be saved then, right? And that's exactly what Jesus affirms in verse 27. He says, it's impossible. Yeah, you're right. No one can be saved. It is impossible with mere men. But with God, all things are possible. Amen. And now Jesus here is unfolding the greatest offer. Jesus says, it's impossible. It's impossible apart from the work of the almighty sovereign God. Apart from his work, his supernatural work in your heart, no human being can be saved. No one can be justified and made right before God. Romans 6.23 says what? The wages of sin is death. And so we all rightly deserve eternal death because of our sin, because our hearts worshiped other things rather than the living God. But now Jesus invites us to receive the greatest offer, because yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The greatest offer is that even though we deserve nothing but God's righteous wrath, And there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. God offers us eternal life through faith alone, in Christ alone. No amount of money can buy your salvation and free you from your sin and pay the debt that you owe God. Because it has already been paid in full at the cross. When we choose to deny ourselves, when we choose to go all in, that is to let go of our own desires and our wants and our plans and our agenda, and we place our trust and our faith and our, our hearts and our all in our treasure in Jesus, he promises that we will not be disappointed. What does Jesus say in verse 29? He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. So right, right before P- Peter had said, look, we've left everything. We've left our jobs. We left our family to follow you. Was it worth it? And Jesus says, assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, It is worth it. Those who have renounced everything for the sake of the kingdom of God will receive many more times in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying you will not go empty-handed. If you lose your life, you will find it. You will have treasure in heaven. You will have eternal life. And this is what was offered to the young man, right? Jesus said, go sell everything you have, And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When Jesus says to this young man, there's one thing you lack. In essence, he was saying, the one thing you lack is me. I am the greatest treasure. But in Jesus' promise in verse 29, he says, yes, you will have eternal life. But he also says, "What in this time, so that means that when we choose Christ over everything in this world, we will experience a reward both in heaven for eternity, but also here on earth. So let, let's let's just be careful um, because sometimes when we read verse twenty-nine, we might be you know be tempted to think, well, if I give away, you know, if I leave my house, then God will give me two houses. Right? God will give me more, right? So I don't think that's what Jesus is saying um, because I have two older sisters. So if I leave my two older sisters, is Jesus going to give me 20 more sisters? I don't know if I want that. Two older sisters is enough. Two's enough. The cost is great. Discipleship will cost you your life. Yes, God will demand all of your heart. And anything less will not do If you want Jesus plus also having an affair with the world, as Pastor Allen always says, no deal. God says no deal. I want all of your heart. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, when you meet the real Jesus, when you really meet the real Jesus, when you put your trust in him and follow him and go all in, you're going to find that he demands much more than you had thought. You thought following Jesus is just you know an easy road. And as you follow him, this is what you're going to find. You're going to find that Jesus actually demands much more from you than you had thought. But you will also find that he offers so much more to you than you ever dreamed. So listen to what God is offering. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through his spirit that dwells in you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abounds. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is all that you can experience in this life and for eternity when you choose to be all in. When you say, yes, I'm, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a disciple. To leave the world behind and live each day, as we sang in the song, by faith in Christ. So what should we do now? If you haven't made the decision to completely surrender your life and all your earthly treasures, to turn to Jesus and be saved and receive by faith eternal life, I pray and I encourage you that today will be that day for you. No doubt, count the costs, as we learned last week. Count the costs of following Jesus because it is going to cost you your life. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. But if you're ready to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus for the rest of your life, then don't wait till tomorrow. Don't walk away sad like the rich young ruler. Instead, receive Jesus by faith with joy like Zacchaeus in the very next chapter, who said, here and now I gave away half of my possessions. If I cheated anybody, I'm going to give back four times as much. I don't care about my stuff anymore. I don't care about my money. I have Jesus. Jesus wants to come and eat with me and dine with me. You can have the world. Just give me Jesus. And may that day be, may today be that day for you that Jesus would say salvation has come to this house. So if you have not made that decision to follow Christ, I want to encourage and challenge you to do that today. Maybe go home tonight Count the cost and see that all the pursuits in this world is ultimately senseless and harmful. They may be good things, but in the end, if we treasure and we put our identity and our life in those things, it will ultimately lead to destruction and death. But Jesus is saying, if you come to me and you receive my salvation by faith, you repent and you turn away from your sins, and you come to me, I guarantee you you will experience true life. May today be that day that Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And for those, I'm assuming many um, here, who have already trusted in Jesus and are saved by grace through faith alone, I just want to encourage you to really um, take this week to look at your heart and use some of these uh, questions Is there something in my life that I treasure more than God? Have I surrendered my dreams for my own life, my family, my children, my future? Have I surrendered all those to God? And will I be all in? Will I be all in in giving all my heart and all my desires to Jesus, trusting that he has so much more to offer me than I ever dreamed. I don't know what you are treasuring most in your heart, in your life right now. And I know sometimes just the, the fact of being a Christian, being part of a church and serving in ministry you know, to some capacity can sometimes cloud our um, you know, self-reflection because we're quick to say, well, I go to church, I'm part of the worship team, part of this and that. Um, and I'm not trying to doubt your salvation here. Um, but but I think it's, we really need to continually look at our hearts and look at our lives and say, am I really loving Jesus? Am I treasuring and valuing him more? Because for the rest of you, you said yes to Jesus for the rest of your life. You're going to have these, you know, Abraham, Isaac moments where, where, where God is going to ask you, you know, will you give up your house to me? And let's just say, you're like, yes. Then later on, he's going to say, are you going to give up your marriage to me? Are you going to give up your, your children and the future of your children? Will you surrender that to me? How about your, your career and what's going to happen in retirement? Are you going to surrender that to me? See, for the rest of your life, it's going to be a life of denying yourself, taking up your cross. It's not just that moment of salvation and then, hey, I took up a cross one day. You know, I'm good for the rest of my life. No, it's daily for the rest of your life. But the reward is you have Jesus. And shouldn't that be enough to say, yes, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. I just want to close with this uh, story. Um, So my wife, Catherine, and I, we've been married for, oh, shoot, six, seven seven months. (laughs) Um, We we, we got married last uh, August, 2020. About a year and a half before we got married, uh, in January, I had a God moment with, 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 with God. Um, <laughs> and at that at that uh, uh, the time, I had um, I had left my job at Big Dessert Bar that previous summer because I felt you know God wanted me to do something else. Um, teaching. So for like three, four months, I was like gung ho about being a, a chemistry teacher. And that, and I was like, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not being a teacher. And the reason why, part of the reason why I did that, because I felt, you know, okay, I, I, I'm pursuing this relationship with Catherine. I love her. I want to marry her. And so now my thoughts are, hey, I'm not going to be a single person anymore. I need to think about my future. I need to think about finances. I need to think about supporting her. And so that just naturally, my heart just started directing towards, okay, I need to find a career. That is really going to sustain, you know, our future life. And so, teaching was something that I love to do, and also it's a stable job. But of course, I was like, you know, God says no, i not not doing a public school teacher. Um, and then over the, the that winter, um, I started applying for different jobs, you know, like in a, 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 a HR recruiter position, um, and you know, a a purchaser, and there were like jobs that I I have like what does this even do? Like, I have no idea what this, like, company is. I still applied for it because it was like, hey, it's, you know, decent pay. And then in January, when I had that God moment, that's when God met me. When I met God, and God said, hey, I have something more for you. I'm stirring in your heart what I'm calling you for and what your heart really longs for. And he was really leading me to a life of ministry now whether what that looks like full-time part-time youth you know missions um i had no idea all i know is that that at that night i was just god i'm all in god you put this burden this desire in my heart i I'm, i'm so in love with you jesus i'm all in a month later or a couple weeks later i had shared what god put in my heart with Catherine. it was after our date um and i was dropping her off at the condo and so, in the car before she uh, before she went in, in, into in, into uh, the condo, I had shared with her, "Hey, this is like what God had put in my heart a couple of weeks ago, and I just want to share with you. I'm so excited." And I remember that night, she, she was pretty quiet, and she, she just said, "You know, um, thank you for sharing. You know, uh, I, I, I mean, I do have you know some concerns and worries, primarily because of the the finances." And so, my heart just Turned like upside down because at first I was like, "Man, I got a God moment, and I'm all in. I'm I love Jesus, you know. I'm what I want. Yeah, you know." And then now I'm I'm faced with, wait, the reality is, will she say no? Is God, are you saying that I have to maybe choose my marriage, my future marriage, or your calling? And I remember, she. It, it was kind of like a on eggshell kind of a conversation that it ended. And so she went back into the room or into the condo. And I remember just driving back home and I was in, in the car and, and I, I was just praying. And I said, God, is this what you do? Is this what you do to people who say I'm all in for you? Is this what you demand from those who say I, I want all of you, Jesus? Are you really asking me to give up and surrender my future family, my dreams, and, and my future wife to you? Is that, is that what you do to people who say, I'm all in, I want to follow you, I love you, Jesus? And it was just this wrestle in my heart. It's like, ah, God, I want you, I want to follow you, but I don't want to give, potentially give up my, my future wife and, and my marriage. God, why are you making so, why is it so difficult? Why are you making this so hard? Why are you asking me for something that I treasure so much? And I remember at the end of of my conversation with God, I just said, Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in not only if, but even if. God, I'm going to choose to follow you. I'm going to choose to love you and serve you and treasure you, not only if you guarantee my marriage. Not only if you guarantee Catherine. Not only if you guarantee a stable career. But I'm going to go all in, Lord, even if it means giving up all of those things. And I just want to ask you, church, what would it look like in your life if you say I'm all in and Jesus not only if I get to keep my job, not only if I, I, I you're guaranteeing the success of my children, but even if even if it costs me my life, my health, my future. Even if, because is he worthy? Is Jesus worthy to, 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 to give up everything and follow? Is he worthy to be praised? Is he worthy to, to say, I, I don't care anymore about all of this stuff. I don't care about this world is Jesus worthy in your life? Is he worthy enough? He is. He is so worthy. Our heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus that you have sent your only son and you went all in. You said I love You, even if it costs me my own son. Lord, I just pray that we would be encouraged this morning. I pray that your people in this church would be so encouraged, not so much by what they have to give up, but by so much what they can gain in following Jesus and going all in as a church and as disciples of Christ. Lord, help us to count the cost. Help us to count what the sacrifices that we will have to give up and surrender. But Lord, help us to just fix our eyes on Christ, on his beauty, on his majesty, on his worthiness, and the peace and the joy and the love that we have and that we can experience in a life of faith and following Christ. Lord, help us to be a church who who isn't holding on so tightly to our stuff, to our careers, to our jobs, to our families. But it would just be a church with open hands and say, Lord, everything that we have is ultimately yours. Help us to just be good managers and stewards. Jesus, be the Lord and the master of our lives. We love you and we thank you, Father. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.